0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm President Trump,
1: how are
2: you?
0: Hi, it's Robert Devon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Friday, February 28th. Today, what you need to know about the coronavirus and what it's like being quarantined for four weeks with your partner and your mother-in-law
2: That they believe it's inevitable
1: that the virus will spread in the United States and it's not a question of if but when do you agree with that assessment? Well, I don't think it's inevitable. I probably will it possibly will it could be at a very small level or it could be a, at a larger level What whatever happens, we're totally prepared. We have the best people in the world uh, the President know. said that they have this situation well in hand. Realizing ...the risk, the danger of the
2: virus. Are you telling the Americans, except for the ones who are sick, not to change any other
1: of their behaviors? No, I think you have to always... You know, I do it a lot anyway, as you probably heard. Wash your hands, <laughs> stay clean. The biggest thing he did was appoint Vice President Pence. Exactly right now that I'm going to be putting our Vice President Mike Pence in charge to head the task force that's leading the effort against the coronavirus. Unfortunately, at the same time, the first uh, case of community transmission emerged literally as he was speaking.
2: When they say there is community transmission, it means they don't know how that person got sick. And that signals to infectious disease experts that maybe the virus is spreading more broadly than we know, but we don't know it. So that, that case in California has gotten everybody quite concerned. My name is Lena Sun.
1: I'm a health reporter on the national staff of The Washington Post. I'm Lenny Bernstein. I'm a health reporter on The Washington Post staff.
0: So when we're getting conflicting messages like the CDC saying an outbreak in the U.S. is inevitable. I will now turn the call over to Dr. Messina. Good morning and thank you all for joining us. The fact that this virus has caused illness, including illness resulting in death, and sustained person-to-person spread is concerning. These factors meet two of the criteria of a pandemic. As community spread is detected in more and more countries, the world moves closer towards meeting the third criteria, worldwide spread of the new virus. And the president saying it's not that big of a deal, everything's going to be okay. Should we be freaking out right now?
1: You should not be freaking out now. You should be thinking. You should be preparing. And you should use your common sense. Remember what the CDC warned. They said you should be preparing, preparing for the possibility of widespread disruption in your life somewhere down the road. If this gets bad somewhere in the future, and nobody is predicting when, you may have to deal with a daycare situation. You may have to deal with a closed school. You may have to telework. You may not be able to go to a basketball game. That's all they're asking right now.
0: Lena and Lenny have been covering the coronavirus outbreak nonstop since it began. We had a lot of questions about it, and we figured that a lot of Washington Post readers and listeners did too. So we asked you to send us questions, and then we asked them to answer them. What do we know about how it spreads?
2: Well, it's a respiratory virus. Um, and it spreads through respiratory droplets. So when someone who is infected coughs or sneezes, you can become infected if you come within close contact defined as about six feet. It's also possible that the droplets fall on a surface and then your hands touch the surface and then you touch your face or your mouth or your nose. In many ways it spreads just like flu or cold.
1: Is it as contagious as the flu? It's proven itself to be highly contagious. It's a very infectious virus. It unfortunately also has proven to be more lethal than the flu. That said, right now we have millions of cases of flu here in the United States. We have 14,000 deaths from the flu. It is a much more common virus. We live with it every year, year in, year out. No one is highly concerned about the flu, and we have a vaccination for the flu. So that affords you some kind of protection, assuming you've gotten that shot. With this virus, we don't know a lot of things. We're using the data from China mainly and other parts of the world to make educated guesses about how contagious it is. So the reason why people are worried about this
2: virus is because it's a new virus. Think of it this way. This virus doesn't know what it wants to be when it grows up. And so that is a concern because as more as the virus spreads in people, they are worried that it could mutate, it could change and cause more severe illness. So far that has not happened. The other thing about this virus is there is growing evidence that you could spread the disease to someone else even when you are not really showing symptoms. Or very mild symptoms. And it's because of the lack of really good information exactly about that level of transmission that people are worried. And that's why we're seeing a lot of cases, not just outside China especially, where they don't really know how the person got sick
0: that's a really good point because we also know how to protect ourselves from getting the flu beyond the vaccine. But in terms of coronavirus, what's the best way to not get it? Does that mean wearing a face mask or washing your hands or staying
2: home and away from people? So use your same common sense, washing your hands, try to practice not touching your face, staying home when you're sick not getting very close to people who are coughing and sneezing. It's all the same common sense prevention. And also people should really not freak out about face masks. The CDC does not recommend that the average person wear a face mask. The face masks are mostly for people, the doctors, the clinicians, and other people on the front line who have to triage, have to take care of potentially ill patients. They need to be protected. So... Even though people are already doing this, don't be going out to Home Depot and buying a face mask. You know, just use your common sense. Who's the most at risk?
0: I feel like we usually think of kids or the elderly when it comes to who's most at risk of getting the flu or cold or any type of virus. But is that the same for the coronavirus?
1: Yes. The virus is killing people in their 80s at a much higher rate than any other age group. And it essentially descends as you go younger and younger. Fewer and fewer people are dying from this virus. In fact, very young children seem to be, for reasons we don't understand yet, doing quite well in terms of fatalities from this virus. The other group that's really at risk is people who have underlying illnesses, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, kidney disease, cancer. These are people whose systems are weakened, their immune systems are not as robust, and they are showing higher rates of fatalities. About
2: 80% of the cases in China have been mild. About 20% have been more severe illness. Um, in some cases, people have been put on ventilators, machines to help you breathe. In the case of our most recent patient, that person is on a ventilator.
0: So we also got a lot of questions about diagnosis and health. What do some of those symptoms look like? The
2: symptoms look just like flu and cold. but. Just because you have a fever or a cough does not mean you should rush into the emergency room. You have to think, hmm, have you been to Wuhan? Have you been traveling in Singapore or South Korea? Have you been in contact with somebody who has a confirmed coronavirus case? Those are all sort of the basic common sense things that doctors will want to know. And hopefully if this thing won't spread, but if it does spread, and there's more community cases here in the United States, they really don't want you, the worried well, to be rushing to the
1: emergency room because they need to save that for the people who are truly sick. Now, in the severe cases, it moves on to uh, a pneumonia, and uh, it can be very severe pneumonia and all the way up to lethal for the people who get those cases. In China, there's the understanding, the belief, I should say, that many of the mild cases never even made it into the hospital, There was no availability. There were no beds. And people just sort of rode out their mild cases at home. And the other thing that
2: listeners should understand is most of these cases are in China. And the attack rate or the severity of illness and the death rates have all been highest in China. Outside of China, those those rates are much, much lower. So that kind of leads into my next question, which is the
0: question we got the most – When should people go and seek medical help
2: if they have symptoms that are kind of like a cold or a flu? If you have been traveling to the airports a lot or traveling overseas a lot or traveling to some of these countries where we now have travel alerts, where there are many cases of coronavirus, and then you come back and you have some symptoms, then you might want to call ahead and let your doctor know. And then you could possibly get
1: tested. Now, should there ever be, God forbid, widespread community transmission in this country, those guidelines may change. They may very well start to say that people with certain kinds of symptoms, even if they appear mild, may want to go and get themselves tested. We're a long way from that right now. If things become
2: more widespread, public health officials want you to be thinking ahead of how to prepare. If there are a lot more cases, right now we don't have a ton of cases, but if there are a lot more cases and they're starting to spread and doctors and public health officials don't know how people are getting it, you may want to think for your own self, okay, if I'm taking regular heart medication, maybe I should make sure I have enough for a one-month supply and don't put it down to your last few. As Nancy Messonnier from the CDC was saying last week, if you have child care and then you lose your child care, um, what kind of preparations should you be making just in case? Businesses need to be thinking about, well, if there is a lot of disruption, they should be letting their employees telework. And if there are lots and lots of cases, and we are not there yet, but if there are and they want people to be prepared, they may not hold a lot of these mass gatherings you know it's called social distancing so keeping you away the common sense from other people who might be sick
0: how do hospitals and doctors actually test for
2: the coronavirus this is a little bit of a tricky conundrum right now the guidelines are fairly narrow the guidelines say you can qualify for testing if you have traveled to china recently or you have been in contact with a confirmed case so that's pretty narrow. In some other countries, they have widened the criteria to allow you for testing. But in the United States right now, this afternoon, this is what it is. I believe that that criteria is being looked at every day. I mean, in fact, I know that's being considered every day to widen it. But you cannot go into a doctor's office or a hospital and say, you know what? I think I may have it. Please test me. The test kits are only available now at the CDC. There has been an issue with the test kits. They're not working quite the way they want. So when they get that fixed, they want to send those test kits to the labs all across the country. And
1: once the labs have them, they will be able to do more testing. The controversial first case of community transmission that met neither of the two criteria that Lena just described. So even though she brought herself to a hospital... When they checked her out, they decided she didn't meet any of the reasons for them to test her for coronavirus. So a number of days passed while she got sicker and sicker. She was in the hospital, uh, but she got sicker and sicker until they finally did test her for coronavirus, discovered that she had it even though she hadn't traveled to China and she hadn't met anyone who had the virus.
0: So a listener named shin Kang wanted to know how much a country's resources impact their ability to react. So my
3: question is about the outsized number of coronavirus cases in countries as small as South Korea. I was curious how much a country's resources to deal with and test suspected cases, the speed at which they're doing so, and transparency with the public can account for the surge in numbers. Thank you. So this is a
1: very important question. The United States is probably best situated with the greatest amount of resources, public health resources, to devote to this kind of a situation. And you can see how we're doing, right? It's still an improvised response. We're kind of running on the treadmill, trying to keep up with an ever-changing situation. What international health officials are really worried about are places in Africa, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and countries that don't have the public health infrastructure that we have. And they are very concerned that when the virus gets into these places, it's going to get out of hand. I mean, you have a developed country like Italy that has hundreds and hundreds of cases almost overnight. They have a pretty good health infrastructure. What's going to happen when it gets into some very impoverished African country? Because doing this kind of infectious disease work
2: is very labor intensive. When you are first trying to figure out how an outbreak is starting, you find out who that patient is and who that patient has been in contact with and who did that patient go to the store with and who else was at the store. If they went to the hospital, who else was in the waiting room? And you have to go and then... locate all of those people and say, find out if they had symptoms and who they were in contact with, This tracing this whole family tree. And you see how that is becomes logistically difficult when you don't have those resources.
0: Is transparency an issue when it comes to navigating resources or navigating getting clear information on
2: who has the virus or how they could have gotten the virus? Transparency is the most important in a public health crisis so that the public trusts you. If one day you have the leader of your country saying, everything is fine, and then the next day you have a whole bunch more cases and a public health official says, we need to prepare for um, wider spread, people are going to get mixed messages and they're not going to believe the government. And they need to believe federal health officials or people in positions who know, because if it gets bad, if there's wider spread, Then you need the public to heed the warnings, like don't do this and don't do that. But if there's already all this level of distrust, if political leaders are saying one thing because they want to make sure the stock market doesn't fall and health leaders are saying something else, then you have a problem. Thank you so much, Lena and Lenny. Thank you. Thank you for
0: having us. Lena Sun and Lenny Bernstein cover health for The Washington Post. In the second to last week of January, I traveled to the United Kingdom to present at a conference. The day after the conference, I went to a popular brunch spot in Bristol, and as soon as I sat down, two white women at the table next to me seemed to suddenly remember the coronavirus. The coronavirus is also having a cultural effect. There have been reports of racism and xenophobia towards Asian Americans since the outbreak began even though the U.S. is half a world away from coronavirus ground zero. Oh, did you read about the coronavirus? And all these students that are coming in here? I I was too stunned to say anything, but the server brought my food so I thanked him in English. Then I heard the two women speaking in hushed voices.
3: I immediately felt uncomfortable in my own skin as these women felt my presence as a threat to their health. Six years ago, I um, signed up to be in a bone marrow registry. So I got a call about a month ago saying that um, I had matched with a girl with cancer. So I'm wearing a mask in the waiting room and there's this old guy sitting next to me, this old white guy, He's talking very loudly into his cell phone. I'm going to get sick because of all these Chinese wearing with them face masks. And I look over, you know, he's sitting right next to me, and then I look around and I'm the only Asian person. So he very deliberately said that so that I could be made to feel uncomfortable. So basically, outbreaks have been attributed in marginalized groups or the other. 2009, swine flu with Mexican-Americans. 2003, SARS with Chinese-Americans. 1980s, HIV with Haitian-Americans. But on top of that, it was called the 4-H disease, a reference to the, quote, perceived risk factors, or, quote, Haitians, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, and heroin users. 1900s, influenza, Germans. 1800s, typhoid, Irish,
0: 1300s, bubonic plague, Jewish. It also sounds like it's something that for centuries has confused people. But we should also be clear here that these associations aren't medically sound.
3: No. As one
0: medical official told me, viruses don't discriminate, so why should we? Marion Liu is an operations editor for The Post. She also writes about race and culture, including how the coronavirus is impacting Asian American communities. There was a writer
3: from South California who told me after seeing reactions on Twitter online, she basically said she wished she could change her face. And there's been reports of, you know, everything from dirty looks, deserted restaurants, bullied children, even more recently, graffitied storefronts, taunting in subways. It's been really bad.
0: You use this phrase, forever foreigner, in your story, and it really struck a chord. And I'm wondering what exactly it means and how it relates to the coronavirus.
3: This is a phrase, forever foreigner, perpetual foreigner, is a phrase that I think a lot of Asian Americans use often in our community to describe what we go through. um, From questions like, where are you from? To how long have you been here? Or... Your English is so good. It's a stigma that we all face. And it comes from the way we look and our culture.
1: And this notion is that no longer how long that we have lived here, even if we have lived here for several generations, people still see us as foreigners. My name is John Yang.
3: Who is president and executive director of Asian Americans Advancing
2: Justice. The impact it
1: it is difficult. It's difficult for Asian Americans because they do feel like they are outsiders looking in. Uh, sometimes for many in our community, we have this field, this need to prove ourselves.
3: And so it's, it's frustrating to always be perceived as a new immigrant when our community
0: has been here for a very long time. It also makes me wonder about how this is affecting businesses and communities. So are people avoiding places like Chinese restaurants or Chinatown because of coronavirus?
3: Yeah, they are. I mean, Chinatowns throughout the country are ghost towns. Our colleagues Joyce Lee and Jane Ornstein traveled to New York during the Lunar New Year. They talked to a Wuhan noodle shop who said that business has been really drastically down.
0: Is it unreasonable for people to do that, for people to latch on to race as a association with the virus?
3: I think the best association is travel, not race.
2: Throughout history, when an outbreak of an unfamiliar disease emerges, racial and ethnic groups are often singled out as the cause of the problem. This is Monica Shakspana. I'm a medical anthropologist at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. What happens sometimes is when people start sorting into safe people, unsafe people, safe places, unsafe places, as opposed to the problem being the pathogen or the disease.
0: But have there been any efforts to combat this association with coronavirus and Chinese people?
3: There have been, which is nice. I mean, most recently on Monday, Nancy Pelosi visited San Francisco's Chinatown.
2: To everyone, you should come to Chinatown. Precautions have been taken by our city. Uh, We know that there is a concern about tourism traveling all throughout the world, uh, but we think it's very safe to be in Chinatown and hope that others will come.
3: Boston, Seattle, Philadelphia either had, you know, government officials eat there or they held press conferences. To kind of show the community, like, we're in this all together. How are people coping with such overt racism? Not well. It's happening, and I see it happening online, like, people talking about it. This is coming from a community where there's a Japanese phrase that kind of crosses Asian culture. Basically, the nail that stands up gets beaten down. We don't like sticking out. We don't like being different. We don't like talking about ourselves, good or bad. People are being victimized,
0: and they don't want to talk about it, and they don't want to report it. Marianne Liu is an operations editor at The Post. And now, one more thing. Terry McCord was visiting his partner's mother in Ichan, 200 miles west of Wuhan, for the Chinese New Year, when the Chinese government began to take measures to halt the spread of the coronavirus. The three of them have been quarantined in an apartment building ever since.
1: And as I always say, it's probably a good thing I don't speak very much Chinese, because therefore I don't understand what they're talking about, which may be a blessing in disguise.
0: Terry's in good spirits, though, baking and cooking a lot, and logging 20,000 steps a day on his Fitbit from walking around the building.
1: I made crepes one day, and I've made, uh, I made bread, and I made manto, And, uh, you know, so it's just, and I walk. And, you know, do you know how much it takes to walk 20,000 steps?
0: <laughs> Terry hopes to be out of quarantine by March 10th. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. In yesterday's episode of Post Reports, we originally said that Michael Bloomberg would be on the ballot in South Carolina. His first primaries are actually on Super Tuesday. Our executive producer is Madalika Sikka. Our senior producer is Maggie Pinman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohamed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renis Fornofsky, and Ted Mildoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Nicole Ellis. Martine Powers will be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. The
1: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates—